0: Well good morning, lovely to be with you all. Thank you so much Graeme for the invitation to come and bring God's word to you this morning. I wonder who is actually ready for Christmas this year? I don't think I'm particularly ready for Christmas, it kind of can catch us out quite a bit and I think that is something that we all find that December comes around pretty quickly. And. Despite the fact that we may not be ready for Christmas, there are preparations we have to put into a place, don't we? We have to buy presents. We have to prepare to get the food and plans to meet with people. And yet for all of those preparations, without the incarnation of the Son of God, there wouldn't be Christmas. And Christmas is all about the Son of God coming to earth. God preparing a way of salvation for us. And ultimately this morning I want to talk about preparing a way of salvation, that great work of preparation that God had to do for us, that way of salvation being made possible. But also there's the preparation of our hearts for salvation, the supernatural work that God has to do in us so that we're able to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something that we can do in our own strength. And then there's also being prepared for the Lord Jesus' promised return. And I'd encourage all of us in the busyness of Christmas and all the things that are going on, let us not take our eye off the main thing. Let us not forget to be prepared for the Christ and to stand for him in this dark and evil hour. So this morning we are going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 40. If you do want to turn there, we're going to be looking at that together this morning. But before we go there, I just want to kind of go back a bit, because in Isaiah 39, it kind of leaves us on a bit of a cliff edge. There's this kind of cliffhanger ending at the end of uh, Isaiah 39. And in Isaiah 39, we read about King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah was the most faithful of kings in the southern province at that time. Israel and and Judah had been divided into two, so he had the the larger kingdom of, of, of the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. Now, the the kings in the north are particularly evil, particularly Ahab, but all of them led Israel, the northern kingdom, into idolatry. But in the south, there there were some good kings, some, some better kings, but the best of them all at that point was King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was the first king in Judah to actually get rid of all the idolatry. He cleansed the nation of its idolatry. And he also led this tiny little province, this tiny nation in prayer when the the great king of Assyria went to invade and God miraculously delivered Judah from him. And then we see King Hezekiah got ill, he got sick and at that point he cried, he wept to the prophet Isaiah and, and asked that God would spare his life and so God gave him an extra 15 years added to his life and enabled Hezekiah to live on. And then in Isaiah 39, we see this moment of real folly on Hezekiah's part. The prince of, of Babylon had sent envoys because he'd heard that Hezekiah had been ill and obviously just wanted to you know, offer him a gesture of kindness or whatever. But Babylon was an enemy. They were a pagan nation. And King Hezekiah, in a moment of weakness and boasting, showed the envoys all of the treasure that was endured at that, that time. Now the Bible does say that pride comes before a fall, and it does tell us that God opposes the proud. Now King Hezekiah was proud, and it displeased the Lord. And so God rebuked uh, Hezekiah through Isaiah, and told Hezekiah that one day Babylon would come in, and they would take all of that treasure. And and sure enough, we, we see after King Hezekiah's reign, his son Manasseh was... A particularly evil king, the most evil king in Judah. He he practised witchcraft and divination and sorcery, and in fact even burnt his own son in the flame. A lot of innocent blood was shed in Judah, and God's anger was turned against Judah. And so in the backdrop of all that, eventually there there is a, a brief revival under King Josiah, but that's short lived. And Judah goes back into their idolatry, back into their godlessness, and then sure enough, they eventually fall to Babylon, as Isaiah had warned, and they're taken off into exile. And so this is where we come to in the beginning of Isaiah 40. And in this dark moment in their history, we have this, this wonderful, these wonderful words of comfort. So let's read together firstly from verses 1 to 2 in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These are words of of great comfort. Judah may have abandoned the Lord, but the Lord has not abandoned them. And this is the message for us this morning as Christians. We may mess up. We may wander away, but God never abandons us. Yes, there's a refining work that God has to do in our lives sometimes. I've experienced that in my own life. There are times where God will discipline us, but he never abandons us. And so even though in the context of Hezekiah's pride and foolishness and his son Manasseh's great evil in Judah and that judgment that was coming on the nation, the Lord had this plan of redemption and in Isaiah 40, we see two layers to this plan of redemption that we're going to look at more in a moment. But there's these this, this two layers of redemption. One is the, the immediate rede- redemption of Judah, who would be brought out of exile in Babylon. So God is speaking to his people Judah at that time. The temple would be rebuilt and the exiles would come back in due course. But more importantly... God has a second plan, and that is bringing his word and his salvation to the whole world. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So I'm going to read from verse 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 5 particularly this morning. In verse 3 of Isaiah 40, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And there are three things I'd like to bring out of this this morning. So we look at this more deeply these three verses. And the first is the lone voice in the wilderness. The lone voice in the wilderness. Have you noticed how the majority of people are not interested in spiritual things? Have you noticed how most people don't care? Have you noticed that the voice of truth is in the minority? Have you noticed that when you speak the truth, people oppose you? I've experienced that myself as a minister in the church, opposed for speaking the truth. People do not like the truth. The truth of, uh, uh, it's spoken, the the voice of truth and wisdom, it's drowned out by the, the noise of the world. People don't like it. In fact, very often a person has to be brought into the wilderness in their life in order for God to get their attention. When everything's stripped away. You sometimes hear stories and testimonies of people whose lives have gone wrong. Maybe their business has gone bust or they went through a divorce or something, or a, a death in the family, something terrible, and just God uses that to wake them up. That voice gets through to them. And I want to look for a moment at verse 6. Verse 6 says, A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. That is the plain and obvious reality that every mortal has to face up to. Have you noticed that almost every day, at least several times a week in the news, there's some celebrity that's died? And there's the obituary about this person's life and people celebrate that person's career or or, or the wonderful things that they've done in their life and they remember them. There's the shock and the sadness of losing that person and there are those whose lives have been positively influenced by that, that person, whoever they are, but they're gone. And everyone is now holding on to the memories and the legacy of that person's life. And the reality of human mortality is plain to see when we look in the news and we hear about a death in the news we, we know this, we know that everybody dies and we also know that nobody knows how long they have on this earth at most we have maybe eighty years maybe slightly more than that but no one likes to talk about it because no one likes to face up to it because it's a problem that they can't fix or perhaps we think that you know sickness and old age and death happens to other people And often when we're younger, we do think this. In fact, I was just reflecting this this week on how when I was 25 years old, for some stupid reason, I I thought I was going to stay that age permanently. Like, clearly not. I'm nearly 45. But 20 years ago, I was absolutely convinced that I was invincible, immortal, and I was just going to stay this age. I'm enjoying life. I'm happy. Everything's great. Having a good time in life. And just assume that I'm just going to stay like that. Well, of course you don't. Next thing you know, your late 20s, then you're in your 30, and then you're in your 30s, then you're nearly 40, and then you're then it's and so it goes on. And you, I'm sure you know that. I'm sure you've noticed. But the thing is, as you get older, you start to notice. You're more you're more aware of your mortality. You've you've seen people around you die. Some may be younger, you've seen extended family members die. You suddenly look round and think, wow, all of my, my grandparents, a number of my aunties and uncles, and that generation have all gone my parents are getting older, I'm in middle age and suddenly old father time is clicking in your ears all the more loudly and all of a sudden that voice in Isaiah yells at you, all flesh is like grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field, wake up, your life is fleeting, your life is but a breath, your life is a vapour, you have such a short time here on this earth and that is the lie that the world tells you that you've got all the time in the world and and yet the voice in Isaiah says no you don't. You're literally here for a moment. Your your life is fleeting. And and Isaiah wakes us up. That voice in Isaiah wakes us up to the reality of the transient and temporal nature of human life. We're going to age. We're going to get sick. We're going to die unless the Lord tarries and comes back in the meantime. Verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever the grass withers the flower fades that is the bad news that is the reality but the word of our god will stand forever and here in isaiah 40 what what the what the prophet isaiah is doing here and what the lord is doing is is pointing out to us the transient nature of humanity contrasted with divine permanence divine immortality Here you are, you humans, you're here for such a split second of a lifetime compared to Almighty God who had no beginning, has no ending, is permanent. The Lord Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That is the encouragement we have today. Christ's words will not pass away. This truth will not die. They can do whatever they want. They can persecute us, they can take away our Bibles, but the word of the Lord remains. The word of the Lord remains And that voice in Isaiah is the voice of truth. And we hear so many other voices around us. I'm not against television necessarily, I just don't bother it with that much. I do feel that there are so many voices we hear through television, through social media, bombarding us from all kinds of different angles. And very often there are voices that are opposed to this voice in Isaiah that warns us to focus on the Lord, on the word of the Lord. In verse 3 it says, In the wilderness prepare a way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That voice in Isaiah calls us to prepare ourselves, our hearts to be prepared to come to him. Secondly, there is preparing the way of the Lord. Preparing the way of the Lord. And as we've already considered human mortality... The reality that, that, that we all have to die, that, that our mortality is clear and visible. And, and that mortality is an outworking of our fallen sinful nature. There is a reason why we get old, why we age. And it is, it is an outward sign of the curse of humanity. It is a reminder, if you like, of, of the curse of Adam so we see that, we see that we, we know that we, we get old, we get, we get sick, we, we eventually will die, we already understand this. But, but there's also the internal as well as the external, there's the internal struggle. The struggle with our Creator, the disharmony and conflict ultimately of the unbeliever with the God who created them. The, the prophet Isaiah calls it warfare, that the sinner is at war with God. And, and the sinner never knows true peace because they're at war with their creator. And this struggle, this this warfare, if you like, works its way out in our lives and in our relationship. All the things around us are essentially influenced by this warfare. And I think that warfare is a really good description of the human condition. And these days, of course, we're very familiar with with warfare, because we see all the major wars around us, and we start to understand conflict. the, The fact that Warfare and strife and struggling is at the heart of all human existence. We see this now on a a grand scale. And yet the Bible tells us that wasn't always the case. At the beginning of creation, man and woman lived in perfect harmony with each other and with the God who created them. Can you imagine that? No arguments, the perfect marriage, the perfect world, no death. The, The Hebrew word shalom literally describes perfect peace and harmony. That, we, we, that is alien to us now and, and the world before Adam and Eve sinned was the perfect world and Adam and Eve were in that perfect relationship with each other and with the God who created them but then they ate the forbidden fruit and that perfect peace has been replaced with warfare and conflict at every level of human life and, and it is marked by a lack of peace. We see it everywhere. We see the war in the Gaza and the Ukraine. We, we see the kind of violence in Birmingham outside the, the Villa Park football ground just last week. We see the couple that are constantly fighting and arguing. We see the children at school that are bullying each other. It's, like, it's at every level of human existence. The brokenness, the sinfulness, the discord, the warfare. And they can make all the pleas they like for a ceasefire, but it will never end The conflict of humanity. There's there's always going to be conflict in our world. And yet here in verse 2, warfare is ended, iniquity is pardoned. Warfare is ended, iniquity is pardoned. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you forget everything I said today, just remember this, that the message of Christianity is this. War is over, and we can have peace with God. War is over, and we can have peace with God. Prepare the way for the Lord means that salvation is coming. In the dark wilderness of sin and condemnation, this divine runway lights up, a highway for our God. I wonder if you've ever been on a plane and you've seen a runway light up at night when the plane's coming back. That is, that is what this is. In the darkness of sin and, and the darkness of separation with God, this runway is lit up, this highway for the Lord. Jesus is that way of salvation, the way, the truth, and the life. And in verse 4, Isaiah goes on to say that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain. Now what this verse is talking about is the incarnation of the Son of God. And there are two main things that that we need to look at as we think about the incarnation of the Son of God. And firstly is that the mountain and the hills are made low. The incarnation of Christ is is the intervention of God with sinful humanity. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans that none is righteous, no, not one. I think we can all agree with that. None are righteous. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We understand we've all missed the mark. We've all sinned. We've all done wrong. And if you like, the problem is that God is high upon that Mount Sinai and fallen humanity is deep down in the valley of dry bones. That is the problem. That's where we find ourselves. God is way up high, and we are way down low. And we have no way of getting to him. We are in the valley, and he is at the highest top of the mountain. We have no way of getting to God. But when Christ came to earth, the mountains were leveled and brought down to ground level. The perfect son of God condescending from the glories of heaven to become a tiny helpless baby in a stable, in a backwater place like Bethlehem. The Christmas story, if we hear it a million times in our lifetimes, should never cease to amaze us. The mountain was brought low. The awesome wonder of it, the son of God came as a baby and lived among his people to save us from our sins. In Philippians, it says in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 6, Though he, Christ, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. The mountains and the hills, they were made low. The Son of God came down to heaven to dwell with us. But secondly, every valley shall be lifted up, Every valley shall be lifted up. The incarnation of the Son of God it was the blessing of sinful humanity. It actually means that through Christ's atoning death on the cross, humanity, fallen sinful humanity, is lifted up. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, where he tells us that God has raised us up in Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Does that not blow your mind? The mountains were brought down and the valleys were brought high. You and I who had no hope of getting to God, He has come down to earth by His Son and through His Son's death on the cross and and our faith in His death on the cross, we are raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Praise God for His grace and kindness. Every valley will be lifted up. Every person who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven, will be brought into the presence of God, will have access to him. Christ came down from heaven to earth and to the cross so that we could be saved. C.S. Lewis puts it so well. He says, The Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. The Son of God became a son of man, so that the sons of men could become sons of God. What a wonderful gospel we have this morning. And when the Lord Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, this voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 3, we're going to just briefly look at that. Because of course the voice in the wilderness is talking about a person. That voice is John the Baptist. And the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about this voice in the wilderness, John the Baptist. And he was the immediate forerunner to the Son of God. And in Luke 3 verse 4, he cries out, prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Prepare a way for the Lord, make his path straight. What was the message that John the Baptist was preaching? Well, I'll tell you what, it was a message that would have got him kicked out of most Anglican churches, that's for sure. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance. Repent, flee from the wrath that is to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And this message that John the Baptist preached, this voice in the wilderness was one of warning, and it was one of taking seriously the consequences of breaking God's law, the judgment of God and fleeing from it. So the question is, how do we flee from the judgment of God? In Luke 3 verse 16, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, the only way that a person can flee from this judgment is to be born again of the Holy Spirit of God, to believe the gospel and to be filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. For a person to be a a true believer, to be a Christian, the Holy Spirit has had to prepare their heart to believe and be saved. And for that person to be filled with the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist goes on to say in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's the warning in verse 17. And actually going back to Isaiah 40 verse 7, as we already had read, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are as grass. So here's this warning that the prophet Isaiah and John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, bring to us that just like the farmer who's going to go out and harvest his field, so at the end of time, God will divide up all of humanity. And there are only two groups. You don't get to sit on the fence when it comes to the kingdom of God. It's the wheat and the chaff. It's the sheep and the goats. One group goes to eternal life, the other group to eternal condemnation, tragically to the lake of fire. That is why it's so important to believe the gospel. That is why it matters what we believe. But thirdly and lastly, let us consider what Isaiah tells us about the glory of the Lord as we come to our last point. The glory of the Lord, of the Lord and but going back to Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 5 it says and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken as we've already considered the unbeliever is not interested in spiritual things In fact I experienced that recently, a work colleague had been through a bit of a crisis and and I shared the gospel with him and I I said to him I'm not a Christian because I'm a good person, I'm a bad person who's been forgiven and Christ brings us the opportunity to be saved and the offer of salvation and he said that's very interesting, I don't believe that but I'm glad you think that, good for you, I mean that is the standard response isn't it? And yet the issue is, if this is true, whether or not you believe it or not, if this is true, then it demands our attention. And not only does it demand our attention, but it is the most wonderful news that there is. There is no other news greater than this. In fact, I remember when I was was ministering as a a minister in in Essex, and an older guy had had come along on a Christianity course we'd been running at that time, and, and he'd made some steps towards faith. But this man was really struggling with, with a few things, and he asked to meet up with a coffee, so I met up with him in a coffee shop to, just to talk through with him the issues that he had. And he said to me, Gareth, the real problem I have is, is with forgiveness. How could God forgive us? I cheated on my wife for 25 years, and she eventually left me, but how could God possibly forgive me for doing that? I mean, clearly he hadn't really forgiven himself, and, and so I start trying to explain and in the end I just gave up. I just opened my Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, just handed it to him and said, read that. And he's just a bit bit taken aback. He takes the Bible starts reading and and his mouth opened and his eyes wide open. He looked up at me and said, if this is true, then this is the greatest news that there is. And I said, it is true and it is the greatest news that there is. In him we have forgiveness through his blood. The problem is that the unbeliever is utterly incapable of understanding God. And and no doubt you will will have discovered this when you've tried to share your faith at various points. Whether it's with family members or if you're standing in Wolverhampton in freezing cold conditions, you will experience the difficulty of trying to explain people the truth. It's like they're blind to it. There's this mental block, this, this block of the heart and the mind. In fact, theologians call it total depravity, the total corruption of the mind, the body and soul. The heart and the mind and the the imagination is completely close to God. And yet, interestingly, you'll hear people talking about all kinds of new age spiritual things and meditation, yoga, positive energy, or the angels, the spirits, whatever else, but never coming to a knowledge of God. And yet, you don't have to look very far to see the glory of God. You don't have to look, you just look out the window. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You don't have to look very far to see the great glory of God. Romans 1 verse 20, that says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, the things you can see. So they are without excuse. The man who says, well, that's good for you. I'm glad you believe that, but I don't believe that. He has no excuse. You have eyes, you can see, but you've got a heart that is blind and will not believe. Creation loudly declares the glory of God from every mountain, ocean, sunrise and sunset, all of the astonishing animals and wildlife in this world that we see. The human body, the complexity of just one single human cell is staggering when you look at it, to the marvel of the birth of a newborn baby. In fact, interestingly, I've had conversations you know, when I was ministering as a pastor, particularly with a couple who are interested in having their child baptized, and the, and the father's not interested, but, the, but the, the mother sees something of the transcendent in the newborn child, there's something that's woken up in the woman that she recognizes. Now, there's something miraculous about the whole thing of birth and, and bringing a child into the world. There's something that I can't put my finger on. Well, it's, it's pointing to the Creator. And there's church history. Just look throughout church history. Look at the way that God has worked throughout church history, through the, through the Reformation, through the, the Great Awakening, all the revivals that we've seen. The Word of God, which we have, which reveals to us so much of the glory and wonder of God if we'll read it. And, and think about it and take it to our hearts. The glory of God is seen right through human history. His glory is the whole point of human existence. At the beginning of the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it so well as it begins by asking the question, what is the chief end of man? Like, what is the point in all this? And it answers that question by saying that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Why am I here? I am here to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The glory of God that is seen in the world around us, but yet is seen most clearly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you want to know what God looks like? Look at the Son. you want to know what God is like? Look at the sun. The Lord Jesus, during His earthly ministry, manifested the glory of the Father in power, in the miracles, healing the sick, feeding the multitude, calming the storm, casting out demons, raising the dead. In His holiness, resisting Satan in the wilderness, living the perfect life, the only man who came to earth who ever lived the perfect life, completely free from sin. In His love and in His compassion, Jesus always had time for people. He welcomed the tax collector and the prostitute, the leper, and and wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus loved people deeply. He cared about them. He was concerned about them. He was interested in them. He always had time for them. And the Lord Jesus also demonstrates that glory of God at the cross We see the wisdom of God at the cross of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21, it tells us, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel doesn't make any sense to the person who's lost. To the person who's saved, we cling on to it for dear life. This is our truth. This is our salvation. There is no greater display of love than at the cross of Calvary. Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And also at the resurrection of Christ we see the power of God. In Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Think on this for a moment, that God did not spare any of the suffering or shame that our sin deserved. Christ drank the full wrath of God for us as our substitute. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And the prophet Isaiah had a foretaste of that glory in the vision that was given to him. And I wonder this morning, do you see the glory of God at the cross of Christ? Do you see the glory of God this morning? Are you comforted this morning that your warfare with God is ended and your iniquity is pardoned? Because the prophet Isaiah says that there will also come a day when the Lord Jesus will finally return. He says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall be shall see it together. Everyone's going to see this. Everyone who's ever lived. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Everyone will see it, that is for sure. And it is for sure because the Lord has spoken it, it will happen. That day is coming with absolute certainty. Christ will come again and all will see his glory. Everyone who ever lived. And the Apostle John in Revelation says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. May we be ready and prepared. All flesh will see him. Every knee will bow before him. This morning, do you know him? Are you prepared for him, for that glorious day when Christ will one day return? We don't know when that is. We, we could see the Lord return in our lifetimes. We don't know. But we are called to be prepared and to be ready. And this Christmas, as we prepare for Christmas, let us think more deeply about what this means. The gift that's been given to us, the joy that is put into our hearts by the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth for our redemption. May we live in that reality and peace. Amen. Let's just bow our heads and pray as we thank the Lord for all that he's done for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we... Don't know where to start in thanking you for what you've done for us, but we, we lift up our hearts with such gratitude and praise for what you've done for us through your Son Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to remember when life is tough and perplexing and painful and difficult, that we have a hope that does not disappoint, that you've poured your Spirit into our hearts and by faith we see that which we strive towards, that we persevere in. And so Lord, I do pray for all of us here today, that we would walk in that truth, that we'd hear that voice of warning, and that voice of assurance as well, that, we, that in Christ there is no condemnation. Father, I pray you'd pour your Spirit into our hearts afresh, that you would encourage us, that you would help us to recognize that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Bless this fellowship, I pray, Lord, and, and Keep them close to you at all times, Lord, I pray that they would walk closely with you and know your deep love and care for them this Christmas in Jesus' name. Amen.